Good morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, our deacon didn't come up and walk down the aisle for any prayer requests or visitor slips. We would love to make a connection with you in the coming week. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be spending our time uh, together this morning. As you're turning there, I want to take us back to January 9th, 2007. It was a Tuesday. But it wasn't just any Tuesday. On that Tuesday, something happened that was very big that changed our lives as we knew it. That day, Apple CEO Steve Jobs had a press conference, uh, just to put it mildly, and at that press conference, he announced what we now call the iPhone. He walked on stage and he said, and I quote, every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. And 15 years later, we can look back and say that it, it certainly did. I don't even think Jobs could have possibly imagined just how big the iPhone was going to be. America now has 113 million iPhone users. And there are over 1 billion owners of iPhone worldwide. When we want to sell something like the iPhone or anything at all, what we often want to do is to make it sound good, sound appealing, sound flashy. So we throw big press conferences, we, we maybe we have a commercial, maybe we'll put a celebrity in a commercial to sell you a product. It's always interesting to see these big name celebrities that I grew up watching on, on sports or something like that, and they're selling, you know, hair plugs or, you know, deodorant. Or it's just very interesting to see the connection there. Uh, last Super Bowl, the Manning brother did a Pepsi commercial. Uh, Kevin Hart, one of the biggest comedians in this day and age, did a Sam Club advertisement. So it's just interesting to see these big name companies get these celebrities to sell their product because I think, among other things, it makes it look more appealing. When we want to sell something, we want to make it look appealing. We want it to look flashy. Unfortunately, that same approach, that same mindset can, can uh, and infiltrate how we go about communicating Christianity. That instead of letting God's word be God's word in and of itself, what we can sometimes be tempted to do is to pretend that we're the one standing in front on Shark Tank, if you're a watcher of that show, that we're selling a pitch and we have to convince everybody by making it sound flashy and cool. We're trying to sell a product. We're not, selling, we're not trying to get them to invest like on Shark Tank, but we want them to buy into what we're saying. And so in, in doing that, we might turn Christianity into something else. It's not just the word of God, it becomes like an elevator pitch we start diluting what the message is. That could be the temptation at times. But what I wanted to see here in scripture that Paul did not take that approach at all. And so I wanted to look at a couple of uh, points to, to hang our hats on if we walk through the text together. And I hope that it challenges you as much as it challenges me. So verse 17, we see first, how did Paul preach? How did he preach? And he says so in verse 17. First he says that his primary objective in ministry is to preach the gospel. That is the number one goal of Paul's life and vocation after he was radically converted to Christianity 
is to, to proclaim and preach the gospel. Now, he, he mentioned baptism. It's not that he doesn't think baptism is unimportant. If, matter of fact, if you go a few verses beforehand, he actually talks about the people that he baptized. Baptism is absolutely important. But his primary goal is to preach the good news, to preach the gospel. Now, what's interesting about this passage, and this happened a lot throughout the whole text, is that Paul contrasts foolishness with wisdom. And so you see here, you get a, uh, the first taste of this in verse 17. He said, to preach the gospel, that's he comparing that with the second half, not with word of eloquent wisdom. Now, the word eloquent here is not in the original text. And the reason for that is, is there, there's one word in the Greek, and the word eloquent or eloquence, depending on what translation you're using, is supplied by the translators of your particular translation. The reason they're doing that is they're trying to highlight this contrast. They're trying to show you how they're, they're two, two different sides, one against the other. It's either wisdom or it's foolishness. And Paul, if Paul trying to get out, and the, and the translators are trying to help us in that. He actually, if you go to, if you look down a little further in chapter two, he talks about this as well in verses one through five. He says, "And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." That's something he's going to touch on again in just a few moments. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so we contrast in here eloquent wisdom, just wisdom in the, in the original text. What he's saying here is that by, uh, he's implying that the gospel isn't this sophisticated message. It's not a flashy message. It doesn't appeal. There's no curb appeal to it. It's a foolish message. It's absurd on its face. And there's a reason for it. Look at the end of verse 17. The reason he doesn't do this is lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's intentionally using foolish language. He's intentionally not using impressive language because to do so would be to empty the, the power of the cross to dilute it and to water it down. So it's, so it's like this. I personally am not a fan of mayonnaise. Don't care for it. So I don't put it on sandwiches, don't uh, knowingly eat it with anything else that I eat. Should, I'm not a fan of it at all. However, Hannah had this incredible chicken dish that she makes. I'm not sure what it's called, but it has mayonnaise in it. And, and she didn't tell me that, I don't think the first time that she made it, but she made it, and I said, this is really good, and then she waited a little while and, and got a smile on her face because she knew I, I had eaten uh, mayonnaise, and she told me there was mayonnaise in it, but I couldn't taste it because it was so diluted, the taste was gone. And so Paul is saying here that he did not want to do that with Christianity. He's not trying to dilute it to make it go away, so that way it, doesn't, it, it seemed more appealing. It, and he says flat out that if he deviates at all from this foolish message, he, he's, he's watering it down. So that, that's how he preached, strictly by not using elegant, by not using impressive language. What did he preach? Number two, what did he, we see how he preached, now we see what he preached. Two things, first, folly instead of wisdom, 
and weakness instead of strength. So first, folly instead of wisdom. You see here in verses 18 through 25, he mentioned the word folly. The Greek word there is moria, the same root word that we get for uh, moron or moronic, the same word there. The idea behind this, that is foolishness, it's nonsense, it's ludicrous. This is a stupid message in the eyes of society. What's interesting about this word too, just is that in scripture, this word is only used by Paul. And he only uses it five times, and all five times are in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. It's the only time we see this word, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, the, to us who are being saved is the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 21, it said to plead God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 19. For the wisdom of this, uh, of this world is folly with God. Oh, we see the five times each of it being used as ludicrous nonsense. We also see this word wisdom. This word wisdom is another word that Paul likes to repeat a lot. He used it 13 times in our passage for today. And the word there is sophos. And the idea behind that is that it, it's pertaining to wisdom, prudent, wise, understanding. And again, this is one that he often emphasized. And he emphasized this so much that if you were to take up all the times that he talks about it, he uses this word, and you would take everybody else that talks about it and combine them all together, Paul speaks about it more than anybody else. And, and he often does it again in contracting wisdom, so-called wisdom, with the foolishness of the gospel. In verse 18, you'll notice that uh, it, it probably indents in your Bible. And the reason it does that is because it pointed back to Isaiah chapter 29. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, um, it tells us where the people of God were far, far away from him. They were far away from him. They were trying to do what was right in their own eyes. They were giving him mere lip service. And God says that in his doing wonderful things, which is a beautiful phrase, in his doing wonderful things, he's going to turn their wisdom upside down. When they try to do things their own way and, be, and do what's right in their own eyes, it doesn't go well at all. Let's go back to verse 18. What a contrast Paul drawing out here. That to those that are perishing, the gospel message, notice he doesn't actually say gospel, he said the word of the cross. He didn't want to dilute it, he didn't want to forget what he's talking about. The word of the cross, it's moronic. But for us who are in Christ, we are saying that it's life-giving. The word of the instrument of death is the power of God. Keep reading in verse 21. Verse 21, they didn't, the world didn't know God through wisdom, which is to say they didn't know them through their own wisdom because they were wise in their own eyes. This message is folly, it's foolishness. It's too, it's too unsophisticated, it's too moronic, only a simple head would possibly believe it. And if you think about it, in our society, I think today, this is often how Christianity is seen. It's seen as simple-minded. It's seen as naive, outdated, from Karl Marx, who said that, uh, that religion is the opium of the people, which is, and what he meant by that is that there's all this suffering in the world, and Christianity is just a drug to help you get through it. It's just a coping mechanism. 
from Mark to Jesse Ventura, who said that religion is a crutch for the weak-minded, to Bill Gates, who said that just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion isn't very efficient, not practical. Christianity is often seen as simplistic, simple-minded, or perhaps even stupid. I mean, surely, we think, surely we progressed. Surely we're more sophisticated now. We have self-driving cars. Why would we possibly trust the words of some Iron Age illiterate peasant who thought that the sun orbited the earth? Foolishness. Or so we think. So then, I was thinking to myself, what is considered wisdom in today's world? If this is foolishness, then what is considered wisdom? Well, where do we come from? Well, it's considered wise, it's considered wisdom to believe that we're here by pure chance and dumb luck. That there is no God, that we're, that we're just here by the blind process of Darwinian evolution. There is no ultimate purpose to life other than whatever subjective, fleeting purpose that you make for yourself. There's no objectively qualitative difference between you and the tree that was cut down on to make the pew that you're sitting on, which is dust in the wind. But even still, even with all that said, we should still treat each other with love and respect. We're here by accident, there's no purpose to life, but you know, let's love each other. What is truth? It's considered wisdom to believe that, we're, that objective truth doesn't exist. We're told, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. We're told to be tolerant, of course, except those who disagree with you. Don't tolerate them. I don't want to tolerate them anymore. Who are we? We're, we're told it's wise to believe that we're all in charge of writing our own script. After all, how many times have you heard, don't judge me? We think that we must be authentic to ourselves, but to express ourselves and our desires, and any attempt to squash that is immoral or wrong. It's considered wisdom to, to believe that sex is merely a physical act that exists to bring pleasure for those who engage in it, however many there happen to be. There's nothing intrinsically special about it, it's just a physical transaction of sorts. It's not special, but what's interesting about that though, is even though we, our society says that it's not special, our society understands that there's a vast difference between someone who is slapped in the face and someone who's raped. One carries far more weight than the other. Where did that come from? If it's not in, rooted in the Christian worldview. The only moral code and, and the wisdom of today seems to be one of consent. And as long as all parties consent, then anything goes. It's considered wisdom to champion abortion. We champion abortion access, but we lament miscarriages. We have prenatal screening, until we, so you can find out the gender of the baby. You can also find out if the, if the baby had Down syndrome, and in many cases, if the baby had Down syndrome, the baby is aborted. But what's interesting is that that very same baby, if they're not aborted, about 10 years later, if that, they, they do the Special Olympics. And what do we do there? We cheer them on. So 10 years earlier, they get killed. 10 years later, we cheer them on and applaud them. 
We're, consider, we're told it's wise to believe that men and women are entirely interchangeable. Dictionary.com, just about a week or so ago, Dictionary.com uh, chose woman as a 2022 word of the year. How did Dictionary.com define woman? Definition, woman, an adult female person. What is a female? Definition, relating to or being a woman or girl. And so they put out a press release with, when this came out, when this article came out, and here's what they said. The dictionary is not the last word on what defines a woman. The word belongs to each and every woman, however they define themselves. It's considered wise to believe that men can become women and women can become men simply by identifying as such. And so there's no objective definition to manhood or womanhood. It is merely all about personal identity. Let's do a thought experiment, if, you, if we could. I want you to imagine um, a young woman who's looking at herself in the mirror, and she doesn't like what she sees. Matter of fact, she anguishes over this. Because what she sees with her eyes doesn't match with what everybody else is telling about her. They're telling her one thing, she hears it, but she doesn't see it. And so she anguishes over this. Eventually, she, takes, she finds a doctor to allow her to take extreme medical and surgical action for it. And then, she, and then she even goes as far to reshape her body to conform with what she sees to go along with what her mind makes her see. This isn't, I'm not talking about, tran, I'm not talking about a transgender, I'm talking about anorexia. But it's the same logic for both. Because if we have a woman, a young woman, who is struggling with body image, and she, see, she thinks herself to be overweight, and people all around her saying, no, you're healthy, you're perfectly healthy, you're a beautiful young woman, just the way you are. And she looks at herself in the mirror and says, no, I'm not. I see myself uh, significantly overweight. I need to take measures to counteract that. Nobody would say, no, you should, you should go get liposuction, or you should make yourself throw up. But we live in a society that says, no, you should go ahead and do extreme, irreversible surgical procedures like double mastectomies to go ahead and radically alter your body. That's considered wise. We're told in, in the wisdom of this world that there's no God to save us, that it's up to save ourselves, that the humanist, humanist manifesto said. Yet the issue with that is that no matter how hard we try, we can't live up to even our own moral standards. We, so what we do is that because we can't get our act together, we elect politicians to do the saving for us. But then we find out very quickly that all those promises they made, all that sweet talk they, that they did, they, you know, they didn't mean all of it. Politicians can't do it. We can't do it. So if we look to the left and we can't find an answer, and we look to the right and we can't find an answer, and we look down to ourselves and we can't find an answer, maybe that's an invitation to look upwards. That's what all this goes for what's called wisdom today. And so Paul's message here was seen as moronic. And what's incredible about that is that instead of shying away from it, he leans into it. He preached folly instead of wisdom. But the word of the cross is foolishness. It's absurd. Second, he preached weakness instead of strength. Verses 22 and 23, Jews demand signs, much like Jesus' ministry. If you think back to 
the gospel account, to always saying, hey, do, do this, do this, do this. The Greeks demanded wisdom, but instead, verse 23, Paul preached about the Christ being crucified. And again, lest we forget, the word Christ means Messiah. This is the Savior of the world he's talking about. That Paul is saying the Savior of the world didn't just die, he was crucified. And again, in chapter 2, verse 2, he, he mentions this again, that he decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul doesn't want to perform parlor tricks. He's not going to pull a bunny out of a hat. He's not going to try to win your attention that way. Instead, he's focusing on the cross of Christ. He doesn't focus on his education to appease the Greek, because he certainly had education. Instead, he focuses on the cross of Christ. And what did this message focus on? This foolish message was centered on the fact that the long-awaited Messiah for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years was not just killed, but crucified. Weakness. Crucifixion was the most humiliating form of execution. And it was reserved only for the most vile and despicable criminals and offenders. Not, not just everybody got this. And so for Jews... If you think back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, and for the Jews, it was especially even more awful because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, a man who, a man who had hung on a tree was seen as cursed by God. And even that man, even if they were cursed by God in Deuteronomy 21, they were instructed to take the body off the same day and to bury it, which is why, because the Greeks probably, excuse me, the Romans probably knew that, whenever they crucified especially a Jew, they would leave the body up there. Because it was seen as even worse. And usually when they left it up there, it was usually left for the animals to eat. There was a Roman, uh, a Stoic philosopher named Seneca who lived during the time of Jesus. And I want you to note how, what, how he talks about crucifixion. He says this, Is there such a thing as a person who would actually prefer wasting away and pain on a cross dying limb by limb, one drop of blood at a time, rather than dying quickly. Would any, human being willing, would any human being willingly choose to be fastened to that cursed tree, especially after the beating that left him deathly weak, deformed, swelling with vicious welts on shoulders and chest, and struggling to draw every last agonizing breath? Anyone facing such a death would plead to die rather than mount the cross. It's an awful punishment, the ultimate form of weakness. And, and this word, uh, cross, the same word that we get excruciating from. Remember, a number of years ago, I was given uh, a tour, a couple of people, we were given a private tour of Angola prison, about an hour and a half or so north uh, of us. And Angola prison used to be, uh, up until about 30, 40 or so years ago, was the bloodiest prison in the country and currently is the largest maximum security prison. Sits on 18,000 acres. Had its own zip code. And in the corner of this prison, there is this small little building called the Red Hat Cell Block. Red Hat Cell Block. And it's one story, it has uh, 30 jail cells in it. And each jail cell is three feet by six feet. And the bulk of that six feet is taken up by a cement bed. 
had a small window in it, and, it was, and when we were given the tour, we were told that it wasn't uncommon at all for multiple men to be thrown in there. And next door to this building was an even smaller, like a little shack. And this shack was the execution room where they had an elect- the electric chair. And the electric chair was called by the inmate Gruesome Gertie. And they used, the, they used Gruesome Gertie uh, for 50 years until 1991, and they used it for 87 executions. I want you to imagine with me that if I if walked in here this morning with a necklace around my neck, I had it hanging over the suit. But instead of a cross, I want you to imagine I had Gruesome Gertie around my neck. This replica of an electric chair. What kind of images would that have brought to mind? Is anybody going to go out and buy a necklace with a gruesome Gertie on it? I don't think so. We have necklaces with with our cross on it. We have tattoos with a cross on it. We have bumper stickers, all these things with crosses on it. But that revulsion that we feel about wearing gruesome Gertie around our neck is the same revulsion that anybody in the first century, for a couple centuries, would have talked about when you hear about the cross. It's repulsive. We live in a world that champions strength and might. Paul focuses on weakness. So how did Paul preach with simple words? What did Paul preach? Folly instead of wisdom, weakness instead of strength. Number three, who did God use? Who did God use? Verse 26. I love this. Uh, we see here that the disciples weren't much to look at. They weren't going viral on TikTok. They, didn't have, they weren't YouTube influencers. They were just regular men. Don't take my word for it. It says it here in verse 26. Not many were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble births, meaning they weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. So no wisdom, no might, and no claim to authority. So then a question has to be asked then. How did a bunch of nobodies be at the start of a church that blew up in an age of no email, no YouTube, no internet. How do we explain the explosion of the growth of the church other than the intervention of God? It didn't spread by force, it didn't spread by coercion. The people's lives were changed by a fullest measure. They were fools for Christ. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are weak, but you were strong. You were held in honor, but we in disrepute. He talked over and over again about how we are, they are just fools for Christ. And if you look at verse 26 to 28, there's a really beautiful um, relationship in the verses here. He intentionally goes against the grain. He goes against what society might hold up in high regard. And each verse in verses 26 to 28, the mirror image of each other. Here's what I mean. In verse 27, he said, chose the foolish to shame the wise. You go back to verse 26, not many of you were wise, the first part. The second part of verse 27, chose the weak to shame the strong. Verse 26 said, not many were powerful. In verse 28, God chose what is low and despised. In verse 26, not many were of noble birth. There's this relationship bounced back and forth between these verses. In verse 29, he says, we have no ground for boasting because we brought nothing to the table. And this is totally counterintuitive to our mind today because we live in a meritocracy. We earn, for, we earn what we get. 
if we get something that's good of our own hard work. And so sometimes we think about that with our relationship with God, but in Scripture that's not the case at all. That God continually, perpetually goes against the grain. Think, just to give you an example, in Joshua chapter 6, the fall of Jericho, the Israelites are told to take the city. They're weaponed up, they're ready to, they're ready to move in, but God says, no. No, we're not, we're not going to move yet. Instead, instead of using your weapons, I want you to walk. And instead of walking, I want you to walk and, and don't talk. And I want you to walk around the building, excuse me, the city of Jericho for six days once a, uh, once a day. And I don't want you to talk. I want you to be silent. And the only thing I want you to do is play the horns. Get, get the brass instruments going while you take to go around the city. And then, on the seventh day, I want you to keep walking, but walk around it seven times, and then, and only then, I want you to scream as loud as you can. And, and hit the trumpets up. And at that time, when you read that chapter, incredible chapter, God does all the work. And they take over the city. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see this theme again. Uh, God just flat out tells, in case, in case they weren't really sure what God was saying, God flat out says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I didn't choose you because you were something worth looking at. I wasn't driving by. I said, oh, that looked good. I'll take it. He says flat out, I chose you because you were the fewest of all people. When I was in middle school, uh, we got a dog, a beautiful uh, Weimar rider. I was in sixth or seventh grade. And I remember uh, going to the breeder. And uh, so dad and I went to the breeder, and they have all these gorgeous uh, Weimar rider. It's like a silver uh, mid-sized dog. And um, I'm like 12 or 13 at the time. And I remember going to see this puppy. And I, I held this, I picked this puppy up, and this puppy starts, you know, immediately just, you know, starts licking on me, and I said, I said, I love dogs, I just ate it up. And I, and I started getting attached to this dog, and I remember the owner, the breeder, telling my dad, hey, you need to put that dog down. Don't, don't let him get attached to it. That thing's to run. And, and I found out that my dad had paid, um, evidently, you could pay extra to get the first pick of the litter. And so the breeder were telling dad, hey, you don't want that one. That's the runt. You're paying extra money. You need top choice. You need the first pick of the litter. And so we quickly uh, put that one down, and we, didn't, and we didn't get that one. And, and we got the one that we ended up getting. She was a wonderful, uh, wonderful dog. We talk about having to pick of the litter. God, in, God intentionally chooses the runt. He doesn't choose the high and mighty. He doesn't choose what looks good. He chooses the runt over and over again. This is why Paul talks about how in Ephesians chapter 2, we have no room to boast because it's only by the grace of God that we are saved. So God routinely uses the word lowly, foolish, despised, but why? That brings you to the last point. Why did God do it? Why did he continue to talk about these things? Why did he hammer these points home over and over again? In verse 30, we see why. Because of God, we're in Christ Jesus who became to us, number one, wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. 
Christ is called the power of God and the wisdom of God. In contrast to the false wisdom of the world, Christ embodies true wisdom. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and you know, Peter, in and, and John chapter 6, he realized uh, something similar when all the disciples, had, uh, most of the disciples had walked away and Jesus said, hey, are you going to leave too? And I picture in my mind, Peter's just going, where else are we going to go? You, you have the word of eternal life. But that's not it. Jesus is also our righteousness, which is to say that when we put our faith in Christ, we're seen as righteous in the eyes of God. And this is not something that you and I can work for. And we're reminded of this again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of, of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And for the Christian, what makes this particularly beautiful is that this is a one-time thing. This isn't something that the idea of being made righteous with God is not something that I have to muster up enough strength for each and every day or each and every Sunday. It's a one-time event. It's a, it's a transfer to our account, as it were. We strive to live for God, but it comes from a heart from standing right with God. Our desire to live for Him doesn't come for our salvation, but rather it comes from our salvation. I'm serving Him out of a love for Him, not just to get Him to like me. Number three, sanctification. That while righteousness is a one-time thing that stays with us as we're in Christ, sanctification is a lifelong process that we become more and more like Christ each and every day. The things that he, uh, that, that, that he loves are what I become to love. The things that he hates are the things that I grow to hate. And there have been studies over the years that have shown that the longer a married couple is married, the more alike they become to be. And um, what's interesting that 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 we kind of use that analogy to say that our relationship with God is the same way. And it's a fair analogy, but as I was thinking about it, I think it falls short a little bit. And here's why. It's not that, you know, when, you, when you're married, the husband and wife grow, become more and more like each other. That's one of the beautiful parts about marriage. But with God, the more, the more time we spend with God, God's not becoming more like us. We're becoming more like him. And so to think about this new year, if we were to look at our relationship with, with God, January 1, last year, can we honestly say that we are more and more like him? I hope that we can. That should be the prayer for us all, that the Holy Spirit shapes us and molds us into the image of Christ. The last one is redemption, that we have freedom and deliverance, not in our own strength, but in the crucified Christ. The, hum- the humanist manifesto was wrong. They got it wrong. We can't say we, we can have salvation, but it's not in ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Look back, look, if you look back at your past year, yeah, I'm sure there were some highlights, but there's also a lot of lowlights. We should also see that our help would have to come outside of ourselves. Our biggest problem is our problem with sin, but this is incredible because this shows us how good God is. And this is something that Paul frequently talks about in his letters. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, verse 14 speaks of Jesus. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 3, 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is possible only through Christ. 
And then finally in verse 31, not all boasting is alike. Not all boasting is alike. If we are going to boast, maybe be like Paul and say we boast about our weaknesses. We don't try to cover them up. We own them and we say that God is magnified in those weaknesses. His power is made perfect. We're seen in, in our weaknesses. So what, what did it look like to live in a full, at a full? In the year 2023, what did it look like to live at a full? In a, in a world that's full of animosity and hostility, may we be different. May we be quick to forgive. We're often quick to condemn. That's easy. May we be quick to forgive. Maybe love our enemies. Maybe pray for them. You know, it's hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. The world will know that we're followers of Christ by our love for each other as well. In a world that says to be authentic and live your truth, may we instead be people who die to ourselves and follow after Christ who is the truth. In a world where he who had the most toys win, may we not store up treasures on earth where it rust, but rather store up treasures in heaven. May we be a people who give freely of our money, our time, our resources, our very selves. In a world that champions strength over weakness, wisdom over foolishness, and going viral over being faithful, may we boast instead of the finished work of Christ. I remember I heard a story some years ago about Billy Graham back in the 60s, or excuse me, 50s, he went to Cambridge, and he was scheduled to speak there um, to the college students and the faculty, and they packed the place out, a couple thousand people, and he was scheduled to speak there for a number of nights, and so he is just this regular American, he's going to this uh, European elite at Cambridge, and so I'm sure he was a bit nervous, and so he prepared these speeches, and he was going to make these you know, interesting references, and use some multi-syllable words, perhaps, and really show that he fit in. That you could hang with the with the big with the big fish, and so he does. He, he does a couple of nights, carefully crafts his messages, but nobody responds. Each night, nobody responds. And so, a couple nights in, he decided to change his approach, and he and he discarded his prepared message, and he walks up to the front, and he says, "Let me tell you what I know about the cross of Christ." And there was a minister there named Dick Lucas, and he sat and he was there that night, and so he, he was recalling this story. And here's what he said. Dear Billy, dear Billy got up that night, and he began at Genesis, and he went right through the whole Bible, and he talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all over the place, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And and that night, to everyone's shock, 400 young women and men stayed. Not by this impressive message, but by simply talking about the cross of Christ. It's not words of eloquence and fancy speech that saves, it's the blood of Christ. How, how, did that, how did that hymn go? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the, but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. So today, are we, are we trusting in our own wisdom? How did that go for you last year? In Jesus, we can have true redemption. In Jesus, we can have true rest. May we be fools for him and not trusting in our own wisdom, but resting in the foolishness of the cross, which alone has the power to save. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the fullest message of the cross that alone has the power to save. We thank you that we can't save ourselves. Help us to realize that we can't save ourselves. We look to the left, we look to the right, look down on ourselves, and we can't find salvation from anywhere else. Father, may we help us to see the ludicrous but ever true message that Jesus died for sinners. And if we put our faith in him alone to save us, he will save us from our sins. That whoever calls uh, calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you for that good news. Help us to respond to that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.